Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have the honor of being joined by Kenneth Woodward. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. Now, uh, people might probably best know you for your work um, in the publishing world, in the magazine world, which you did for about 40 years. Is that right? Yeah, I certainly did, yes. Now, you were the uh, editor of the religion section uh, for Newsweek, and um, obviously uh, you've, you've uh, heard quite a few stories in your day. Yes, that's why I wrote the book. I like to tell stories. It, it, it really seemed like the book was your accumulation of experiences over four-plus decades in the religion world. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a very fair assessment, yes. Okay, now, um, there, was, there was one line that you said in the book, uh, that you were given the feedback by uh, one prominent religious figure who gave a note to uh, someone from your magazine about you saying that you'd get better interviews if you talked less. Now, now, well, that, that actually happened, yes. I, I put that up early in the book to let them know that it wasn't going to be all ego uh, in the pages that follow. That was Reinhold Niebuhr, the great Reinhold Niebuhr. Of course, Niebuhr. yeah. And um, he, um, yeah, I, I had a, you know, I think it happened with every young person who came to Newsweek, whether, whether you're a religion editor or just a, um, you know, brand new out-of-college uh, reporter. You suddenly threw the mantle of Newsweek around your shoulders. You could call anybody, but... In this case, I hadn't met Niebuhr, and so I got in his presence, and I decided to ask him everything I could think of. And so it was a very diffused, unfocused interview, and he sent a message back to the editor of Christianity in Crisis, which was a magazine that he started at uh, Union Theological Seminary. Wayne Cowan was the editor. To pass it along, tell him, talk less, listen more. (laughs) Uh, you might do get better interviews, and it was a good lesson. Yeah, well, as a uh, pastor by trade and a podcaster by hobby, um, I might talk a little bit more than I'm supposed to as well. So um, as someone who actually knows how to interview people, it is kind of humbling to interview you. So uh, don't judge me too hard. Deal? No. (laughs) No, I'm not in a judgmental mood today, although I like the word judging. I really don't like people who... I keep saying you don't be judgmental. Uh, I thought, well, you know, when I cross the street, I better make good judgment, or I'll get run over. Yeah, that that's a so very. It's a good word. I know what I know what they mean, but good. But, uh, I, I uh, go ahead. When you you described getting to Newsweek and you had a stack of books and you had access to the people that you wanted to talk to, and you found yourself in the sense of like as I'm hearing it, it seems like you're very grateful for that. I find myself in the very same position with just this opportunity to the podcast of being able to talk to people that I read, that I learned about in seminary, that I continue to read for my own enrichment. And I really appreciate hearing just your sense of gratitude for the opportunity you had to do what you did for, for so many years. Yeah, I once made a remark, uh, and the historian Martin Marty uh, picked up on it. I said something, I'm trying to think of, I didn't put this in the book, it was kind of cheeky, but I said, if, you know, I had a sense that I of, of, of calling to the job, because the fit was so well, given my background, and, 
And I said, if I, if the, you know, if, if I wasn't meant for this job, uh, something about either God or I was in the wrong line of work, something to that effect. Yeah. As if it was almost a, 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 a calling. But it, it, you know, it did work because you can see from my background, uh, um, religion and culture, certainly, um, uh, were never disconnected in, in both my uh, background and in my uh, university education. And um, so it came natural for me to see religious dimensions of public affairs of various kinds. And when I got to Newsweek, of course, religion was one section alongside sports, the law, medicine, things like that. And it was sort of segmented. So it took a while for the editors to understand that, uh, yeah, there could be a, a dimension to um, uh, the national affairs and indeed to politics. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I would have to say um, right off the bat that um, as I, the more I thought about it toward the end of this book, where I have two chapters, one on, on religion and the Republicans, the other on religion and the Democrats, uh, there's almost impossible, well, I would say it is impossible up to this point, to draw a connection between somebody's uh, uh, candidate's religious uh, uh, beliefs, behavior, belonging, and uh, and public policy they make as president. There is no connection. Um, and uh, I think people, um, uh, I think uh, when somebody is religious, that can get exploited. Um, and there's been an historical curve to this. I mean, obviously, back in the 50s, um, yeah, people were uncomfortable with Adelaide Stevenson because he was a Unitarian. Um, people keep asking me, well, could somebody of no religious faith be elected president today? The answer is yes. So that's a change. Uh, and we don't want a religious test because that's what the Kennedy thing, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, thing was all about. So, um, but there really is no connection. I mean, maybe there was a certain stringency to the Calvinism of Woodrow Wilson that made him press at Versailles for a complete and absolute surrender. And that was a mistake. Um, and that would have been a Calvinism of his day. Uh, you could make that argument, but that's, that's pretty weak. Uh, George W. Bush, I talk about in the book because everybody was complaining that, uh, or a lot of people were complaining, I should say. Remember, I was in New York, very different from Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wait a minute. Very different from most of Texas, not Austin, perhaps. Um, then uh, um, they were talking about his references um, uh, to Jesus and so forth. And, and there were the ridiculous, uh, including a book about, you know, an impending theocracy. Well, that was not the case at all. That's the way he talked. And by the way, he wasn't the product of a church. He's the product of a small group movement is what he was, um, trying to, to get over the drinking habit. And the small group movement is very different from belonging to a church. And belonging to a church like yours, perhaps, would be very different from belonging to a uh, Catholic or a Presbyterian church, somebody, uh, those are two traditions that have, have visions for the social whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you tend toward the evangelical, it's about the individual, and it doesn't provide you with uh, much less a tradition of thinking about the social whole. Anyhow, um, that's W-H-O-L-E for your listeners. <laughs> Got it. Uh, Got it. Uh, so anyhow, that, I think that's worth keeping in mind. You really can't. Um, Bush Jr. pushed uh, faith-based initiative. Well, if it petered out, and by the way, he put a Catholic the only, and a Democrat in charge of it. 
Um, that was really a, a revision of his father's uh, thousand points of life mm -hmm. uh, and the emphasis on volunteerism, which I think is fine. But it, uh, but that's it. There is really isn't anything, um, and so, so I think voters should keep that in mind. So most of the time, though, people assume that there is a strong t connection between someone's religious background and their uh, their ability to lead. And it, we've gone so far as to see that uh, obviously uh, the Trump campaign has gone out of their way to pr get the religious community behind him in such a way that some are endorsing him, saying he is a real Christian. Uh, Hillary has talked some about her faith. If you say there's no connection, why do you think it is such a talking point uh, in the political um, sphere? They're just using the religious voter, that's all. Um, um, I have a piece coming out of the Wall Street Journal taken from the book um, uh, talking about the role of Methodism um, in the Democratic Party. Um, at the moment, it's, it's, it, you could argue, the more religious party. Uh, but you better understand what I'm talking about when I say religious. It's really a secular form of Methodism. But um, on the other side, I frankly cannot see how any thoughtful even uh, evangelical could uh, suppose that Trump is in any way uh, a religious person. I mean, what the church he says he goes to in New York uh, is, of course, uh, a, 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 the church of a celebrity, Norman Vincent Peale. He's drawn to celebrities. Uh, there's nothing in his life that suggests any kind of ethics at, at all. I, I'm just amazed. He's probably the uh, uh, the least. He's probably the most uh, ethically challenged uh, uh, candidate we've ever had run for president. I think that after about, oh, you remember, I was around to see the rise of the Christian right, and I think an awful lot of people who identify as uh, evangelicals um, uh, just got used to pulling the uh, Republican lever when they go into office. But uh, no, there's nothing there that I could see. And everything that would ought to repel somebody. He doesn't have, a, he doesn't have any respect for marriage, it's obvious, before he's, before he's divorced his wife, he's got another one on the line. And uh, we could go through his life in, in, in lots of ways. And I think it's also true that a, a, um, a man whose personal morals are not good can also be a very good president. They're not the same virtues that are required. We'd like to see a virtuous person in office, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, look at Martin Luther King. I mean, he was a hugely flawed, uh, morally flawed person. And yet, uh, you know, they do good. I mean, um, I suppose an evangelical could say that the guy draws good out of evil in that sense. Uh, or I, um, So, yeah, flawed people can be, um, good, morally flawed people can be very, can be good presidents. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I'm, you know, the old line about uh, you need to believe God to be good. Um, no, you don't. There are a lot of very good people throughout history who, uh, who weren't religious. Um, but you need God to be holy, and that's a wholly different thing. Uh, I made pun. Um, uh, and I think we're called to holiness, uh, Christians are, but um, so in their way are Muslims, uh, well, very much in their way, Muslims and, and Jews. Mm -hmm. So y you make uh, the connection with Eisenhower and the uh, invention of the civil religion. And, you know, before he came into office, as I understand, obviously I was not alive uh, back then, uh, 
before he actually ran for office, the Republicans and the Democrats both wanted him to run in their party. In the same way, it seems like before he ran for office, his religion wasn't uh, something he spoke of that much. But when he comes in power, you say that um, he was believed to be the spiritual leader of the country. So do you think that's really the the genesis of this whole idea of uh, the president needing to be a religious, moral figure that we all look up to? Um, well, that's a good question. That's interesting. I haven't thought about it in terms of, you know, historical terms. Um, it is true. I mean, there was a, um, Eisenhower belonged to a small, uh, pietistic in the, in the historical sense, um, uh, Protestant, almost a sect, you know, in the good, in the, in the proper sense of that term, mm-hmm. um, didn't bother with church going much during his, um, military career, uh, and really, um, really uh, churched himself, if you will, becoming a Presbyterian um, when he was running for president. Um, It was a very particular period uh, in the 50s, and um, people expected people who ran for for, for public office to expect everybody to be religious. 98% of Americans said they believed in God, and uh, it was the period of greatest... um, uh, we built more churches and synagogues in those days than at any other time. Um, 50% of uh, Catholic school children were in Catholic schools. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Sunday school was a national institution. I talk about that in the book. Um, and, and, and so patriotism and piety went together. It was, the, it was during the Cold War. And the other side was atheist communist. And we were going to liberate the people from... Uh, of Eastern Europe and so forth. So, yeah, it was very, very strong. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was expected of him. And, and and the crowd that was running the Republican Party, too, was very pious. I mean, John Foster Dulles, if you remember, was Secretary of State, was very big in the World Council of Churches. The, um, the um, Protestant, uh, there was a Protestant elite, and uh, uh, it was sort of the end of it, but it, it, was, it was in full bloom. Mm-hmm. And um, people still thought of this as a, as a Protestant America, um, hence the Kennedy problem. But I would point out that it was a Republican Party. It was on the front page of the New York Times uh, that announced that Dwight D. Eisenhower, not only president of the United States and commander in chief, um, but also the spiritual leader of the country. And there was no great brouhaha about that. Imagine if they had said that about, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter or uh, Ronald Reagan or something like that. Yeah. So and I, there's another Ronald, Ronald Reagan was not religious, except in the most gooey sort of vague sense. Um, I have a line in there. I've been using it for years from uh, Eugene McCarthy. He said there are two kinds of religion that uh, uh, that are toler- tolerated in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> strong beliefs, vaguely expressed, and vague beliefs, strongly affirmed. <laughs> and we've seen that time, time and time again. Hmm. It's like Billy Graham. You can't be too particular, you see. Billy never wanted to get into um, historic differences, yeah. uh, theological differences. He wanted a big tent. Everybody yeah. was welcome to come. He kept telling me all the time about how many Jews came to his... You know, re, um, to his uh, 
uh, to his crusades. I, I didn't believe it. Um, people were always nice to Billy. Uh, Billy also was a, a fusion of, uh, or was in his um, early days, very much a fusion of patriotism and, uh, and piety. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to get to Billy Graham in a second, but I want to stay with Eisenhower for one more sure. minute. So he, d- sure. during his time, in God we trust was placed on our currency. Uh, the pledge added the phrase, under God. Even though right. he himself... All that happened. Which, uh, which, of course, was not... Which is, in some way, a shock coming from his background. Like, that's not a big deal. And as I hear you describe it, it sounds almost like the increase of civil religion is in response to atheistic communism, that it, it becomes the foil communism that causes religion to be put in the forefront. Do you think that's a fair connection? Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think the, um, uh, I think that's there, but the man who, who, who conceived the idea of civil religion, Robert Bella, a great sociologist, just died a couple of years ago. Um, I think that, that essay, um, gets misinterpreted. Um, in the sense that civil religion didn't begin then. It, um, it began much earlier, uh, you might also say, with the Puritans, saying, you know, uh, that this was, um, um, uh, this country had been set aside for the uh, Puritan settlers mm-hmm. to, um, to create a city on a hill and to um, uh, uh, embody uh, something that... Uh, they couldn't do in Europe, and um, it was to be a Christian country, which translates into Protestant country uh, at that time, and that remains true all the way up, practically, you might say, to the Kennedy campaign. Um, so the um, um, that that sense of, of of being set aside by God, um, it also fueled the you know the the, the desperation of the. Uh, uh, to 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 make sure that Catholicism didn't get a hold in California, coming up from, you know, Mexico, uh, the, the sort of rivalry way back when. Um, I, so we did sacralize our experience as Americans, and um, you know, Lincoln was our fallen redeemer, in a way, uh, with mm. a small R. Okay. Yeah. So all of that was in place. All Bella did was remark on that. The civil religion was in monuments, uh, like the Lincoln Memorial, and it was in, in uh, certain practices, certain holidays. Um, yeah, we hold these truths to be you know, self-evident and all that kind of stuff. There was a, the merge went on. Uh, it just coalesced, uh, I would say, in, on the Eisenhower era. Hmm. It's okay. not a bad thing. He's, yeah, he didn't say it was a bad thing. Um, I, I think, especially evangelicals and well, especially Protestants, sort of sort of said, "Well, you know, this is a rival to real religion." No, I, I think it, it, it's present in um, nationality. I think as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have a quote okay. from uh, Will Herberg. Uh, who I guess this is mm-hmm. probably around the 50s. He says, America today is very often a religionness without religion, a way of sociability or belonging rather than a way of reorienting life to God. Uh, you have a line about it, a faith in faith. So it's, um, it, it comes across as, that's, as a pastor, that's the last thing that I would want my religion to be. What, mm-hmm. what do you think was causing that to be the experience in the 50s, maybe early 60s? 
Well, I think that can be said every time. Uh, if you go on in that paragraph, I talk about he set a bar very high. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, uh, there are an awful lot of people who like going to church because for, the, for, for all the wrong reasons. Um, they meet people there. It's a home away from home. Um, uh, they, uh, it's all the better if, uh, the pastor gives, uh, gives a good sermon and they feel good and they've had their dose of God and so forth. Um, uh, I go along with Dorothy Day that said, uh, that the love of God was a harsh and dangerous love. And, um, um, and the difficulty of being a genuine Christian and, um, uh, how do you do that? What, what's that look like going back through history? And I don't want to do that on your radio program, but, uh, yeah, I think, um, I've always felt that, uh, uh well, I, people would come from Europe and say, how come, so, you know, we're not religious. How come this country is so religious and yet it's so advanced and so forth? I said, because it's easy to be religious. It doesn't cost you anything. And um, um, you can, and you can believe in God, and um, that's comfortable. It doesn't get in the way of anything. Um, so so why not? You know, um, uh, we're uh, Martin Marty again to, to uh, cite him. Uh, we uh, he did a book one time. Um, What's it? Secular and sacred, and and you read it from front to back. It was secular, and read it from back to front. It was secular. You, know, you turn the book upside down. <laughs> uh, we're both at the same time. We're we're products of the Enlightenment, which was not didn't take religion very kindly, and we're products of a uh, of, uh, of a religious heritage going back to um, um, you know the early settlers. Although early America, colonial America, was not particularly religious. Maybe what. The estimates have been about nine percent people really were actually churched in those days. Hmm. So um, we've got to keep in mind that uh, we have a very checkered uh, past with respect to religion. Yeah. Okay. So one of the people who early in his career helped perpetuate a religion that didn't cost you anything would be Billy Graham. Uh, that's one of the the changes that he seems to go through in his life, and that's what I found about your section on Billy Graham so compelling. It was the mm-hmm. arc in which he seemed to transform and grow so much during his career. Um, I, I don't know if I've really read that much about his transformation, and it sounds like you had a, um, a, a great opportunity to be there for a long part of his life and see that. Um, and I found the way that you describe him, he's a very moral in terms of his simple lifestyle and his, his morality all in general. When you think back on, on Billy Graham, uh, what is the most compelling thing to you about him? Um, well, one of the things that comes to mind was his naivete uh, and, and as a public figure. Um, uh, he, he was so naive about Nixon and so naive about the way people used him, you know? Um, that's one thing that sticks in my mind. What? If I, um, if I can interrupt, the, uh, what, do you, what do you think caused yeah. that naivete? Why do you think he was like that? Oh, I, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. Billy liked to be liked. Yeah. I've never seen it. And, and, and I talked to him in terms of you know, being a salesman. Uh, that's a chapter that identifies evangelical uh, Christianity with um, as a, uh, what I call it, entrepreneurial Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that's a core feature, sociological feature. It's not a theological figure. It's a core 
uh, feature of evangelical-style Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want to leave it at that. Uh, Billy was a great figure, but he, you know, he grew. He used to go to, you know, off to India and China and whatnot, and he, because he was bringing the word of God to those people. Usually, he was bringing it to people who, you know, were already Christian. Uh, and that was true of his crusades at home. Very few people were, you know, unchurched. Unchurched people typically don't walk in, in, into crusades unless they've got some nagging, you know, religious upbringing in their background. Yeah. Um, uh, but he never learned from the people he was among. Uh, and that big change occurred. I did that interview with him, and he said, I won't play God anymore. And boy, they're... All hell broke loose uh, among American evangelicals. What do you mean? You're undermining evangelicalism. Well, he learned a lesson. That was a big thing. Billy yeah. came, became a bigger person as a result of that. So that's the positive side. Um, most of these people that I see on television are, are abhorrent. Um, who's that guy down in Louisiana? He's got a lot of teeth, and uh, <laughs> he's on on Sunday. He has a, he has a church that the, used to be a football stadium or something. It isn't religious. It, it isn't even Christian. There's not an ounce of Christianity except the language he uses. Um, we've always had those characters around for a long mm-hmm. time. And they're sort of fun to watch, uh, but there was nothing Christian about it. I mean, the cross is at the center of Christianity, and it isn't in, uh, in these people. It's, it's, it's something else. It's bogus. And uh, I don't account for that crowd in my book. Uh, the people that go, Osteen, yeah, it's the same. They, yeah. I don't account for that. Those kind of people. That's a penumbra of religion, you know, with a with a uh, Christian uh, linguistic glaze over it. Yeah. So um, I say in the book, maybe maybe twenty maybe twenty four percent of Americans um, place religion somewhere near the center of their lives. Maybe that many. Well, maybe the, the hope for uh, for them would be the evolution of Billy Graham. Uh, the the quote that you you just referenced was he re- regarding uh, pay, quote unquote pagans in foreign countries. He said they were lost, were going to hell if they did not have the gospel Jesus preached to them. But I no longer believe that. And then he goes on to say that God is the one who does the saving. Right. Which I can't imagine. Right the backlash that that would have caused uh, in, in the circles that he, in a lot of ways, perpetuated and grew, uh, it must have cost him a great deal to make that sort of statement to that crowd. Well, yeah, um, I suppose it did. That's one of the juicier stories I have in there. And that wasn't even at Newsweek. That was from McCall's Magazine. Uh, we were schmoozing back in there. Uh, um, and... Um, yeah, he had he had learned. Look, when he went to the Soviet, when he when he went to the Eastern Europe, I think it was Poland first of all, it's where he met the future pope. Uh, when he saw Eastern Europe and he saw uh, people who were uh, suffering for their faith, it really opened his eyes and um, came back and saw there's probably more real Christians there than the United States. That was the big, I think, the big turning point in Billy Graham's life. Hmm. Um, and. Uh, uh, it's too bad it never caught on among, uh, for his son, Franklin, who, who seems um, unfit for his job um, and the betrayal of his father. Uh, so uh, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal. I, you know, so you could almost call it elder abuse to trot out this old man and uh, pretend that uh, he believes what his, the, the, the sort of hateful stuff is. His father is um, 
uh, his son is, uh, is touting. Uh, Anyhow, um, yeah, that yeah, that's a that's a that's a, a part of it. I I uh, uh, but we we talk about um, differences. I I really do honor traditions of people who for whom theological differences really are theological differences. And the tireless and thankless job that uh, um, uh, representatives of of different traditions try to work ecumenically to resolve those differences. Um, Billy simply skipped over them, and um, uh, I have that uh, image uh, from a church in Texas, you know, um, Church of God or whatever it was called, uh, his, church, his particular church building, you know, um, mm-hmm. started by Jesus Christ in 33 AD, or re, uh, re, uh, whatever, uh, restarted, you know, in 1934 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, that yeah, was. Uh, so as if nothing went, yeah, nothing went on in between those times. You see. <laughs> okay, that um, that's, so, that's actually yeah. the tradition that I'm a part of. It's it was the Church of Christ in Sweetwater, Texas. And that the uh-huh. the cornerstone founded in 33 AD established here in Sweetwater, in you know 1928 or whatever the year was, is a very mm-hmm. common occurrence in some of the more uh, ahistorical, um, uh, non-educated churches in my tradition. There is an assumption that there was just this big gap in the middle, and uh, clearly that's um, anachronistic and and, and a, a big. Fallacy to think. think oh that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, part of it's the Reformation, and part of it's, um, but it, this idea that um, yeah, that there's, there's nothing going on in between. <laughs> I noticed that when a number of evangelicals, Chuck Colson was one of them that I knew. Uh, you know, Chuck changed obviously, and uh, my cynical friends at Newsweek thought, well, you know, he's, he's an SOB, and he always will be. Well, your personality doesn't change that much when you when you go through a conversion, an honest conversion experience. But uh, um, uh, he then opened himself up to, um, you know, a wider tradition. And he used to say to me, I hate these people when they, this is later when he was doing his prison work. And he said, I, you know, well, he didn't say hate. He said, I really even put it this way. Extremely uncomfortable with people who talk about when I was saved. And um, that's a real, it's a, uh, between um, Catholics and other Christians and evangelicals, this business about, you know, when I was saved, it's all, uh, there was a guy named Hazard, I think he was head of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he got, got caught uh, in hanky-panky with some woman, and he said, well, the nice thing is, we know, you know, we're safe, so it's, it's um, there's a safety net. And that's my conversation with Billy Graham when I asked him, yeah. Um, you know, Billy, what's it like to be, uh, you know, you're saved. And, uh, and, uh, when I talked to Mark Hatfield and, uh, uh, and so on, those, those, those are very different. What I want to yeah. call sensibilities. Definitely. Um, and, um, now you, you may have a theory that once you're saved, you're saved. And, and no matter how bad you get, uh, you're going to squeeze into the kingdom of heaven. That was Billy's view, at least in, in his conversation with me. Um, but there are a lot of other people who don't believe that, who never walk around and and, and say that, uh, yeah, general feeling that I'm saved, and they really talk about uh, that. There's no uh, loss of fear. I, as a Catholic, have been really upset. I should write something about this. The uh, decline in regular confession of sins, you know? We don't like to think of ourselves in that way. And we 
and yet this, uh, if I may imagine, this pope uh, uh, has the first thing when we interview that he did, he says, well, do you understand yourself? I understand myself as a sinner, and I understand myself as a uh, beneficiary of the mercy of God. Well, everybody heard the mercy thing, but nobody heard the sinner thing. Hmm. Very interesting. We, we screen out what we don't want to hear. And uh, I have uh, done a, a, my previous book was a study of the miracle stories in five world religions, um, Christianity, Judaism, Islam in the West, and um, Ju- Hinduism and Buddhism. And I looked at these because nobody studies them. They don't study other people's miracles stories because they don't believe them. They only believe theirs. Uh, but the, the, the function of those things. And uh, what I learned from that is that, that, uh, that social action, for, and I mean to write something about this, is not what uh, all these religions are about. Every religion, you see it's very starkly in Buddhism, is about what Christians would call metanoia. Repentance, turning around. Uh, I forgot which gospel it is when Jesus comes on the scene. That's you know he's, he's a disciple of, in a sense of uh, John the Baptist, and he's talking about repentance. We have to turn around, mm-hmm. and that's more difficult. Genuine prayer is more difficult than all the social action stuff. Um, so um, very often you see people. Um, uh, because the common, I would call the civil religion of America today, is volunteerism, um, doing good for your neighbor and all that sort of thing. You don't, you don't have to believe in God to do that sort of thing. Uh, there's no religious prerequisite of that. Um, turn, the turning, turning that we are out of sorts, uh, I think is, is uh, missing. Yeah. And then I think the most difficult thing, uh, you're getting me into a religious mode here, is is the, uh, the, 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 not only the love of God, but the longing for God. Um, you see that in the story of Mother Teresa. I remember listening to really reactionary uh, evangelicals uh, would constantly say, well, she's everybody, Mother Teresa, she's, you know. But all those works aren't going to do anything, right? They don't, God doesn't give her, uh, a damn about those works. Um, if she doesn't have the faith, she's not, they would pound on that line, of course. Well, uh, when we discover uh, this longing for God and willing to embrace uh, the cross of Jesus, the stuff that was going on on the interior of her life that she didn't want people to know, that's the dimension I'm talking about. That's the dimension of holiness. And, um, you know, in my tradition, there's a uh, of the mystical tradition, there's the, pres- the uh, experience of the absence of God. And it's very difficult. Uh, and uh, it's uh, once you reach those levels, um, the gap between creature and creator in some sense gets even greater. Anyhow, well, that's all on the level of repentance, spiritual life, things like that. Yeah. And it ain't easy. And, uh, and I think... Um, I would rather see more Christians embracing that than see them swelling the numbers of people who are on Sunday, yeah, although that, the two are not opposed. 
No, no, definitely. I, I love the uh, somewhat uh, cheeky response you had when Billy Graham talked about how he wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if he knew he was saved, and if he didn't know he was saved. He said, you know, I wouldn't get out of bed if I didn't know I was right. saved. Right. And you're... A, friend, a very dear friend, friend of mine said, Ken, I, I, that's the one thing where I disagree with you. I couldn't get out of the bed either if I didn't know I was saved. And I said, well, I don't want to get into that with you, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and, and so on. Uh, so uh, it's... Uh, it's um, it's, um, um, yeah, I think, but there is that, that kind of high comfort level. And I think, I just don't think we can take, um, take all of that for granted. I remember somebody was talking to us from Lutheran back around, uh, this is not this book, it was a previous book about, uh, was, he was pretty preoccupied with knowing whether he was saved or not. And I said, you know, I got to tell you at my age, um, uh, that was Luther's big issue. I said, I'm not, that's not my question, you know. Um, I really, I've, uh, I don't have that late medieval, you know, anxiety. Uh, maybe as a kid, you might have a little bit, but I said, you know, I've got to, I've got to move beyond my salvation. I, one of the greatest, the only person in this book who, who's really, un, go, 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 I don't criticize in some way, is Rabbi Abraham Heschel, mm-hmm. and um, of course he was three years older than me. And uh, every Christian should read his books. Every Jew should too, for that matter. But it was so powerful. But in any case, I doing a cover story on death one time, and he, I asked him about it, and he said, "I trust the God to, uh, who made me to do with me what He will." And I thought, how inadequate. We Christians have got a sense of, you know, we're going to be saved and resurrected, and we have. Some, in some traditions, a very elaborate kind of thing. You see it's Mormonism, especially. And um, yet his was more like Christ sort of thing, more mm-hmm. father into thy hands, I commend my spirit kind of thing. And, um, and I, think that's, I think that's terribly important. Um, it also makes death rather scary, but, it, but that's the structure of hope. Isn't that the quotidian virtue that we're all supposed to to practice uh, the side of the grave. Yep. Um, the, hope is not is really a, a tough virtue. Yeah, go ahead. No, I I, uh, I loved your stuff about uh, Rabbi Heschel, um, especially his line um, at the Vatican II Council, where his response uh, uh, to I guess Rahner was there and uh, others, and he says to them yeah. that your people are asking for bread and you're giving them stones. Talking about how their theology yeah, that, that, that was at my alma mater at Notre Dame. It was a Vatican, it was a conference right after Vatican II. Oh, conference, right? got it. That yeah. was a that was a favorite line of his, and he he went out on a tour of the um, you know of Jewish congregations, and he kept using that line. He said, you know, they're talking about everything except talking about God, and. Uh, uh, if you can't do it there, I don't know. I, I don't mean to be socially disconnected in any way. Uh, on the contrary, but um, we are so preoccupied with so many things, getting our kids into college and so forth. By the way, before I forget, you ought to pay, I would ask you, I should say, pay attention to the contrast between um, my memories of growing up uh, at the center of concentric circles of belonging and the epilogue where I talk about the, the social script or the way that the young people are growing up today, which is so terribly different. Hmm. Um, I think that's uh, it's very important to me. I, I mean, I had my grandchildren in mind when I 
wrote this book as the ideal reader because mm. they'll never know what was going on 50 years ago. That's ancient history. Yep. Uh, but if they can grasp it in contrast with their own um, jittery, uh, driven uh, culture of our times, um, maybe they'll start to, they'll learn, which everybody has to, how to step out of their own time frame, if you will, yep. the times in which they live, uh, and look at it from a distance. And one way to do that, of course, is to step back in time and look at the present from the point of view of the past. Yeah, uh, that's my experience with the book. Uh, you know, I'm a pastor, and I'm reading this book as a pastor who preaches to eight different decades of people every Sunday, and five of those decades are all older than me. And so I'm reading this, and I'm I'm picking things up that I like the effects of the suburbs, like how that affected church and our culture, um, the distrust in government, how it grew when American soldiers were coming home in body bags. Um, your, your comment about uh, your experience in Omaha, Omaha, where the priest, because of their denom- the, you know, being connected to the Catholic Church, had the freedom to speak out on racism more than uh, my Protestant brethren. Uh, it, a lot of this stuff was very fascinating to me, kind of put things in places that I hadn't done before. So uh, for that, I, I, I appreciate the book, and I think maybe I have the same experience as your grandkids, uh, or the hope that they will, that this, this book helps um, put religion uh, in different contexts so that I can experience it now in light of kind of the historical situation that brought us to this point. So th- that was my experience, and I definitely appreciated it. Well, if, if that was your experience, then I've, uh, then I've done my job, because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I realized that not everybody had my same background, but I think and analogically, right, the people there have, will have had, depending on their age, somewhat similar experiences. I mean, um, I'm thinking, was, was uh, oh, who was the singer? Was there a Church of God guy who was a singer uh, 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 in the 50s? And he's still around. Hmm. I, I can't, uh, uh, can't place it. Oh, oh, yeah, he had the daughters, and, and uh, uh, You Light Up My Life was her song. Um, well, I won't find it, but he... <laughs> He had uh, Churches of God in Christ or something like that in the South, and he made it in Hollywood, and it was a big shock to him. Um, a lot of people still have, especially in more rural areas, have come from rather restrictive backgrounds, and they don't know how to operate on the larger stage, which is presented to them. They can't really escape it in a way. And... Um, um, there's some of that, you know, in my, uh, in my book, except that I'm, I'm a product of the fifties and, uh, um, we're rather confident, or at least I was in, uh, in my religious commitments, uh, being around people who, a lot of them from the Ivy league and so forth, uh, didn't have that same background. I sort of felt like I knew what they knew, but they didn't know everything that I knew. And, um, Hmm. I don't know that religious people feel quite that confident, uh, quite that confident today. Um, but anyhow, yeah. um, well, I think what else can we talk about here? Uh, I think I think the alternatives to religion are important. I mean, um, people will be astonished to know that what those what, what were called cults, then uh, Dr. Moon and these sorts of things, mm-hmm. or the transpersonal psychology and Esalen and all of that. All of that's well. There are permutations of it in our society, um, 
and there are still people who want to be spiritual without being religious. And what they really want to mean is they don't want to be re- being religious means with, <clears throat> with being a lot of, I always say going to church is, is something you do to be with people you'd rather not be with the rest of the week. Um, <laughs> and, uh, m- most people of course pick their church based on, uh, what the parking lot, the, uh, uh preacher sounds pretty good. I won't be bored. Uh, what else? Uh, and they like the people there, you know, like the cut of their jib. Um, and those are, of course, all pretty bad reasons. Um, the um, I, I, uh, here in Chicago, we moved from New York. We uh, we have a priest who uh, who is not only preaches well uh, on Sunday. He every day he has at mass he has something to say. And um, I'm at an age where I can, if I can get my body up in the morning, I can get over it, Master, and then, which is uh, a daily man, which is a uh, which is a privilege. And um, I would think it's very difficult uh, to find something to say every week, not to mention you know every day. Um, I would think that's difficult. But also, you might look at you might look at what my exchange with Billy. Um, on uh he's watching television he's watching himself yeah. preaching and uh i asked him what he's thinking thinking that he maybe he's editing himself saying well you know i did well there but not well there and he isn't and he's of course he's witnessing to me a little bit and he's saying you know no i i see that person i don't see myself i see the spirit of god speaking through that person he wouldn't say holy spirit because i think uh evangelicals of his strife or at least baptist southern baptist I had a problem with, you know, Pentecostals, and so they kind of shied away from that. But he never did write a book. Maybe he wrote one book on the Holy Spirit, but that was it. He did, he, 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 he kind of sliced the Trinity there at that point. Um, anyhow, so yeah, uh, I, I I say, you know, he's he's watching himself. So I'm saying to, I I then talk about how this was um, that there was a very at least my insight. Uh, and people confirmed it for me, uh, others from different backgrounds who have read the book, um, is that it's a verbal sacrament. Now, I know Protestants don't use sacramental language, but Christ is present through those words uh, in some fashion, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it's what I call the flesh made words. And Protestant Christianity is an oral, oral experience. It's ears, it's preaching, it's singing. Uh, all of that, which is why when people start mucking around with the words of the hymns, um, there were strong reactions to that. But um, so there's a very sense of uh, there's that sense of presence. So if you haven't heard a good uh, good preaching, if it's been bad, then you really haven't been to church. Hmm. Um, the, a lot of, of uh, a lot of evangelicals, you know, will feel that way. Whereas um, if I'm listening, starting out hearing a bad sermon, I simply pull out the Bible, read it, uh, and ignore it, because I can tell in five sentences whether somebody has something to say and whether they've done any homework uh, in order to say it. Um, but then we're kind of a, my wife and I put the audience in that regard. <laughs> um, and I think that the Catholic seminaries have been deficient in the, their teaching of homiletics and, and how to go about it. So I think it's... Um, it's a difficult thing, and, and it really, I don't know, preaching in, in this country really has a, has a Protestant trademark on it. I mean, going all the way back to the, to the great uh, preaching of, uh, 
uh, during the foundation and so forth. Anyhow, uh, no, it's very much true. Um, and so I remember on that same story with Billy Graham, I'm out to, uh, it's Sunday and I'm not going to be at mass because I just had the airplane fly out and I've got this thing to, uh, to interview him. And, uh, he hadn't been to church either. He hardly ever went to church except when he was at home. And, uh, uh, you could, and so, um, when he's listening to himself preaching, I think I commented in the book, well, Billy had been to church after all, because after all, he heard himself preach. <laughs> and um, yeah. um, those are funny, and I do try to have some wit in this book, but I think it's also true. Yeah. Um, and that's the way he felt. But anyhow, there's no, there, aren't, there is no more Billy Graham, and there isn't going to be another one. So yeah, I agree. Um, we're, we're in a very uh, fa- um, fallow period as far as that that kind of thing is concerned. And uh, so you as a pastor got a lot of work to do because um, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, the culture isn't supporting religion the way it used to. Yep. Uh, I, I think you're definitely right. And uh, your, your stuff with Billy Graham uh, is worth the price of the book on its own. I mean, it's very, uh, very rich. There's a lot of stuff that you had about him, and I, I definitely appreciate that. Well, uh, Ken Woodward, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about the book, uh, Getting Religion. Uh, I encourage everyone to go get a copy of it, and uh, thanks again for your time, sir. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for the chat, and good luck with the church. Thanks, sir. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.